Section 30 of The Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. The Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12, Section 30. Speaking of Gaul. Gaul is a bitter subject, and I shall waste no time selecting sweet words in which to handle it. There's no surplus of sweet words in my vocabulary anyhow. I have never yet been able to rent my mouth for a taffy mill. Webster gives several definitions of Gaul, but the good old etymologist was gathered to his fathers long before the word attained its full development and assumed an honored place in the slang vernacular of the day. It was needed. It fills what editors sometimes call a long-felt want. Gall is sublimated audacity, transcendent impudence, immaculate nerve, triple-plated cheek, brass, and solid slugs. It is what enables a man to borrow five dollars of you, forget to repay it, then touch you for twenty more. It is what makes it possible for a woman to borrow her neighbor's best bonnet, then complain because it isn't the latest style, or doesn't suit her particular type of beauty. It is what causes people to pour their troubles into the ears of passing acquaintances instead of reserving them for home consumption. It is what makes a man aspire to the governorship, or to air his asininity in the Congress of the United States, when he should be fiddling on a stick of cordwood with an able-bodied bucksaw. It is what leads a feather-headed fop, with no fortune but his folly, no prospects but poverty, who lacks business ability to find for himself bread, to mention marriage to a young lady reared in luxury, to ask her to leave the house of her father and help him fill the land with fools. Gall is what spoils so many good ditchers and delphers to make peanut politicians and putty-headed professional men. It is what puts so many men in the pulpit who could serve their savior much better planting the mild-eyed potato or harvesting the useful hoop pole. It is what causes so many young ladies to rush into literature instead of the laundry, to become poets of passion instead of authors of pie. Gall is a very common ailment. In fact, a man without a liberal supply of it is likely to be as lonesome in this land as a consistent Christian at a modern camp meeting or a gold-bug Democrat in Texas. Nearly everybody has it and is actually proud of it. When a young man is first afflicted with the tender passion, when he is in the throes of the mysterious mental aberration that would cause him to climb a mesquite bush and lasso the moon for his inamorata if she chanced to admire it, he is apt to think it love that makes the world go round. Later, he learns that gall is the social dynamics, the force that causes humanity to arise and hump itself. Gall has got the world grabbed. Politics is now a high-class play, whose pawns are power and plunder. Business is becoming but a gouge game wherein success hallows any means. Our mighty men are most successful marauders. Our social favorites minister in the temple of Maimon. Our pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night, the follies and foibles of the four hundred, our God the golden calf. The standard by which society now measures men is the purse, that by which it gauges greatness, the volume of foolish sound which the aspirant for immortal honor succeeds in setting afloat, little caring whether it be such celestial harp music as caused Thebes' walls to rise, or the discordant bray of the ram's horn which made Jericho's to fall. 
This century, which proudly boasts itself heir to all the ages, and foremost in the files of time, doffs its beaver to brazen effrontery, burns its sweetest incense on the unhallowed shrine of pompous humbuggery, while modest merit is in a more pitiable predicament than the traditional tomcat and tartarus without teeth or toenails. We make manifest our immeasurable gall by proclaiming from the housetops that, of all the ages which have passed o'er the hoary head of Mother Earth, the present stands preeminent, that of all the numberless cycles of time's mighty pageant there is none like unto it, no, not one, and I sincerely hope there wasn't. Perhaps that which induced the deity to repent him that he had made man and send a deluge to soak some of the devilment out of him was the nearest approach to it. We imagine that because we have the electric telegraph and the nickel-plated dude, the printing press and the campaign lie, the locomotive and the scandal in high life, that because we now roast our political opponent instead of the guileless young missionary and rob our friends by secret fraud instead of despoiling our foes by open force, that we are the people par excellence, and the Lord must be proud of us. Progress and improvement are not always synonyms. A people may grow in gall instead of grace. I measure a century by its men rather than by its machines, and we have not, since civilization took its boasted leap forward, produced a Socrates or a Shakespeare, a Phidias or an Angelo, a Confucius or a Christ. This century runs chiefly to Talmages and Deacon Toogoods, pauper dukes and divorce courts, intellectual soup and silk lingerie. The poets no longer sing of the immortal gods, of war and sacrifice, while the flame mounts to manhood's cheek, red as the fires of Troy. They twitter of loveys and doveys, of posies and goose-liver pie, while pretty men applaud and sentimental maids get moonsick. Cincinnatus no longer waits for the office to seek the man. He sells his brace of bullocks and buys a political boom. No more the Spartan mother gives her long black hair for bowstrings. She blondines it, paints, powders, and tries to pass as the younger sister of her eldest daughter. The Norse Viking no longer plows the unknown wave, his heart wilder than the watery waste, his arms stronger than tempered steel. He comes to America and starts a saloon. No more the untamed Irish king carooms off the Saxon invader with a seasoned shillelagh. He gets on the police force and helps run the machine, or clubs the heads off harmless married men who won't go home till morning. In these degenerate days, the philosopher retires not to the desert, and there, by meditation most profound, wrings from the secret treasure-house of his own superior soul jewels to adorn his age and enrich the world. He mixes an impossible plot with a little pessimism, adds a dude and a woman whose moral character has seen better days, spills the nauseous compound on the public as a philosophical novel, and works the press for puffs. Indeed, we're progressing, going onward and upward, like the belled buzzard dodging a divorce scandal. Greece had her Pericles, but it was left to us to produce a Parkhurst. Rome had her Cicero and her Caesar, but was never equal to a Culberson or Corbett. The princes of old conquered the earth, but the modern plutocrats put a mortgage on it. Cleopatra drank pearls dissolved in wine, but whiskey straight is said to be good enough for some of her successors. Samson slew the Philistines with a jawbone of an ass, but a modern politician employing the selfsame weapon could have got him to elect him governor. We've got no Helen of Troy, but our Helen Blazes is a bird of the same feather. 
we got to yield the palm in poetry and philosophy, art and architecture. But when it comes to building political platforms that straddle every important issue and slinging princely style and a pauper income, we're out of sight. How can the acorn become a mighty forest monarch if planted in a pint pot and crossed with a fuzzy-wuzzy chrysanthemum? How can the Numidian lion's whelp become a king of beasts if reared in a cage and fed on cold potatoes, muzzled, and made to dance to popular music? How can the superior soul expand until it becomes all-embracing, godlike, a universe in itself, in which rings sweet sphere music and rolls Jovinian thunder, in which blazes true Promethean fire instead of smolders the sulfurous caloric of the netherworld, when its meats and bounds are irrevocably fixed for it? when it can only grow in certain prescribed directions, painfully mapped out for it by bumptious pissmires who imagine that their little heads constitute the intellectual cosmos. Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, lamented that he lacked Gaul, but the melancholy Dane was dead years before the present generation of titled snobs appeared upon the scene. None of the princes or dukes of the present day appear to be short on Gaul. None of the nobility seem to be suffering for the lack of it. Not long ago, a little duke who owes his title to the fact that his great-grandaunt was the paramour of a half-wit prince, kindly condescended to marry an American girl to recoup his failing fortunes. A little French guy, whose brains are worth about two cents a pound, for soap grease, put up a confederate bond title for the highest bidder, and was bought in like a hairless Mexican pup by an American plutocrat. Now, half a dozen more little pauper princelings and decadent dukelings are trying to trade their worthless coronets for American cash. But the fact that many a man boasting of his American sovereignty will dicker with the titled young duke, instead of using the forecastle of a number nine foot to drive his spinal column up through his plug hat like a presidential lightning rod, will actually purchase for his daughter some disgusting little title upon which rests the fateful bar sinister of a woman's shame, and is encumbered by a dizzy young dude too lazy to work and too cowardly to steal, too everlastingly ornery to raise a respectable crop of wild oats, proves that the young lollipop lordlings haven't a monopoly on the gall of the globe. A most shameful exhibition of gall is the practice now coming into vogue with certain society ladies of encouraging newspapers to puff their charms, even paying them so much a line for fulsome praise. Not a few metropolitan papers reap a handsome profit by puffing society buds whom their fond parents are eager to place on the matrimonial market, hoping that they will make good matches, in other words, that they will marry money, its possessors being thrown in as pelon. Even married women, who are long on shekels but short on cents, sometimes pay big prices to get their portraits in the public prints, accompanied by puffs that would give a buzzard a bilious attack. But the gall of the girl who puts her picture in the papers, accompanied by a paid puff of her purdy, scarce equals that of the conceited maid who imagines she has only to look at a man and giggle a few times to mash him cold, to get his palpitating heart on a buckskin string and swing it hither and yon at pleasure. How the great he-world does suffer at the hands of these heartless young coquettes, if half it tells them be true. David said in his haste that all men are liars and had he carefully considered the matter, he would have come to the same conclusion. Washington may have told his father the truth about the cherry tree, but later in life he became entirely too popular with the ladies for a man unable to lie. It is natural for men to pay court to a pretty woman as for flies to buzz about a molasses barrel, 
but not every fly that buzzes expects to get stuck, I beg to state. The man who doesn't tell every woman who will listen to him, excepting perhaps his wife, that she's as pretty as a parry, even though she is homely enough to frighten a mugwump out of a fat federal office, that she's got his heart grabbed, that he lives only in the studied sunshine of her store-teeth smile and is hungering for an opportunity to die for her dear sake. Well, he's an angel, and he seraphs are almighty scarce, I beg you to believe. Since Adonis died and Joseph was gathered to his fathers, none have appeared that I am aware of. These young gentlemen were all right, I suppose, but I'd like to see either of them get elected nowadays on the Democratic ticket in Texas. But feminine conceit, fed on flattery, were as milkshake unto mescal, as a kiss by mail to one by moonlight, compared with the insufferable egotism of the pretty man, who puts his mustache up in curl papers, and perfumes his pompadour, who primps and postures before an amorous looking-glass, and imagines that all Eve's daughters are trying to abduct him. Whenever I meet one of these male irresistibles, I am forcibly reminded that the Almighty made man out of mud, and not very good mud at that. The two-legged he-thing, who makes a clothes horse of himself, imposes on the street corner perfumed like an Emancipation Day picnic, who ogles a pretty woman until the crimson creeps into her cheek, then prides himself on having captured her heart like the boy caught the itch, because he couldn't help it, when she's only blushing for the mother who bore the pitiful parody on manhood, who imagines that every maid who deigns to waste a smile on him is sighing her soul out for his sweet sake, has allowed his gall to go to his head and curdle his brains. More than a moiety of our so-called great men are but featherless geese possessing a superabundance of gall, creatures of chance who ride like driftwood on the crest of a wave raised by forces they cannot comprehend, but they ride, and the world applauds them while it tramples better men beneath its brutal feet. Greatness and gall, genius and goose speech, sound and sense have become synonyms. If you fall on the wrong side of the market, men will quote the proverb about a fool and his money. If on the right side, you're a Napoleon of finance. Lead a successful revolt, and you are a pure patriot whose memory should be preserved to latest posterity. Had an unsuccessful uprising, and you are a miserable rebel who should have been hanged. Nothing succeeds like success. Had the Christian religion failed to take root, Judas Iscariot would have been commemorated in the archives of Rome as one who helped stamp out the hateful heresy, and had Washington got the worst of it in his go with Cornwallis, he would have passed into history as a second Jack Cade. Alexander of Macedon was great, as measured by the world's standard of eminence, after two and twenty centuries, our very babes prattle of this bloody butcher, and even his horse has been enshrined in history. In our own day, Father Damien left kindred and country, and went forth to die for the miserable lepers in the mid-Pacific, but he is already forgotten. His name and fame have faded from the minds of men. Yet greater and grander than all the blood-stained princes and potentates of earth, Nobler, more godlike than all the proud prelates that ever aired their turgid eloquence at Christian conference or ecumenical council, was that young priest. But no cenotaph rises to commemorate his sacrifice. Silent as his own sealed lips is the trumpet of fate. But for gall of the A1 triple X brand, commend me to the little pothouse politician who poses as a political prophet and points out to wiser men their public duties. We have today in this land of the free and home of the crank thousands of self-important little personages 
who knows little of political economy, as a parent of the power of prayer, prating learnedly of free trade or protection, greenbackism or metallic money, men who couldn't tell the fundamental principle from their funny bone, an economic thesis from a hot tamale, who don't know whether Ricardo was an economist or a corn doctor, evolve from their empty ignorance new systems of saving the country and defending them with the dogmatic assurance of a nigger preacher describing the devil, make gorgeous displays of their gall. I have noticed that, as a rule, the less a man knows of the science of government, the crazier he is to go to Congress. About half the young statesmen who break into the legislature imagine that Roger Q. Mills wrote the science of economics and that Jefferson Davis was the father of democracy. But the gall is not confined to the little fellows. The big political M.D.s have their due proportion. The remedies they prescribe for Uncle Sam's ailments remind me of the panaceas put in the market by the patent medicine men, warranted to cure everything from a case of cholera morbus to an epidemic of poor relations. We have one school of practitioners prescribing free trade as a sure cure for every industrial ill, another a more drastic system of protection. One assures us that the silver habit is dragging us down to the diminution bow-wows, another that only a heroic dose of white dollars will save us from industrial death. Political claptrap to corral the succulent pie, issues to get office. We have had high and low tariff, the gold and silver standard, greenbackism and wildcat currency. We have had presidents of all shades of political faith and congress of every kind of economic folly. Yet, in a single century, America has risen from the poorest of nations to the wealthiest in all the world. True it is that wealth is congested, that willful waste and woeful want go hand in hand, that the land is filled with plutocrats and paupers. But this distressing fact is due to the faults of our own industrial system itself and can never be reformed by placing fiddle-strings on the free list or increasing the tariffs on toothpicks. Gall, ye gods! Look at the platform promises of the blessed Democratic Party, then at its performances. Look at the party itself, a veritable omnium gatherum of political odds and ends, huddled together under the party blanket like household gods and barnyard refuse after a hurricane. High and low tariffs and free traders, gold bugs, greenbackers and bimetallists, Cleveland and Crocker, Altgeld and Olney, Hill and Hogue, Waco's Warwick and Colonel Culberson's kid all clamoring to be dyed in the wool Democrats. When I get a new mainspring put in my vocabulary, I'm going to tackle the gall of the populists and the Republicans. Some specimens of gall amaze me by their greatness. Some amuse me, while others only spoil my appetite. Of the latter class is the chronic kicker who is forever fuming about feminine fashions. If the hoop skirt comes in, this critic is in agony. If the pullback makes its appearance, he has a fit and falls in it. Ever since Eve attired herself in a few freckles and fig leaves, he's been reforming the fashions. Don't mind him, ladies. Like a peacock crying in the night, he's disagreeable, but not dangerous. Adorn yourselves as you see fit. Follow such fashions as seem good in your sight, and have no fear that the sons of men will ever forsake you because of your clothes. When you find a man dictating to the ladies what they shall wear, you're pretty apt to see his head housed in a stovepipe hat, the most inartistic and awkward monstrosity ever designed by the devil to make the Almighty ashamed of his masterpiece. In all history, there's no record of a great idea being born in a bee-gum. I never saw a statue of a hero or picture of a martyr with a plug hat on. 
Imagine the Lord laying aside his silky kitty preparatory to preaching the Sermon on the Mount, or Napoleon apostrophizing the pyramids in a plug. Before finding fault with the fashions of the ladies, just imagine Apollo in the makeup of a modern society swell, loafing into court on high Olympus. Why, Jove would hit him with a thunderbolt so hard there'd be nothing left of him but a wilted chrysanthemum and a pair of yellow shoes. For a specimen of Gaul that must amaze the very gods, commend me to a crowd of pharisaical plutocrats piously offering in a hundred thousand dollar church prayers to him who had nowhere to lay his head who pay a preacher fifteen thousand dollars per annum the point to weigh the paradise while in the great cities of every christian country children must steal or starve and women choose between death and dishonor new york is crowded with costly churches that lift their proud spires into the imperium that part the clouds with their gold fingers monuments which mammon rears as if to mock the lowly son of god their value mounts up into the millions yet i learn from a religious paper mark you that one hundred thousand men women and children were evicted in new york alone last year for the non-payment of rent turned into the streets to suffer summer's heat or winter's cold to beg or starve or steal as they saw fit I find these startling statistics in the same column with a tearful appeal for more money to send missionaries to black barbarians on the same page with a description of a new church that must have cost a cold half-million of cash. That's what I call sanctified assurance, gall masquerading as grace. And what is true of New York is true in greater or lesser degree, of every town from Plymouth Rock to Poker Flats, from Tadmore in the wilderness to Yuba Dam. Everywhere the widow is battling with want, while we send Bibles and blankets, prayer books and pie, salvation and missionary soup, to a job lot of lazy niggers whose souls aren't worth the sumarki in blocks of five, who wouldn't walk into heaven if the gates were wide open, but once inside would steal the eternal throne if it wasn't spiked down. Let the heathen rage. We've got our hands full at home. I'd rather see the whole black and tan aggregation short on Bibles than one white child crying for bread. End of section 30